podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. James from Patreon says, when we discuss cricket in general, it is almost always assumed that we are talking about men's cricket. A discussion of GOAT all-rounders will almost invariably name Sobers, Imran, Miller, Botham, etc., but not Perry. It's funny that you say this because I did a thing about Australian all-rounders and I did a whole section on, on Perry in it. Has the time come for us to make a point of including women's cricket in such discussions or is this something that will happen organically when the time comes? I actually think, James, they're two different sports, so I, I don't have any problems with that. If you're talking about the greatest men's all-rounders, um, I don't think suddenly saying Elise Perry or um, or Catherine Brunt or whoever you want to be in that that argument uh, needs to be there specifically. And for this, the same reason that women's cricket doesn't particularly like to be compared or talked about in, in ways of men's cricket. So there are certainly some times when, I mean, I, I used women's cricket recently when I was talking about left arm seam um, just because I thought it was an interesting uh, variant uh, on, on what I was talking about um, and the fact that even more so that women women seem to be on the left, left arm seam now than ever before, which is uh, fairly interesting uh, considering that men's cricket is going completely the other way. So I think there are things you compare in those sorts of uh, ways. Um, I think it's worth doing that. But as far as great all-rounders go or whatever, I, you know, the women's all-rounders and the men's all-rounders, if you want to do a total one, I think that's completely fine. But I think more often than not, you should probably just do men or women separately. Uh, it, you know, it is quite different, but it just depends on the kind of conversation. I think when I was when I was looking at, you know, Australian all-rounders, I, I found it interesting that Australia hadn't found a great male all-rounder, um, essentially, you know, since Keith Miller in some ways, but, but even, you know, Richie and Alan Davidson, um, after them, there really hadn't been another great all-rounder, and yet they had had a great female all-rounder. So I suppose that's why I, I included Elise Perry in that particular one. Um, and so I do think on occasions it's worth thinking about those sorts of things. Um, but, I mean, the conversation, it just depends on what you're talking about, right? And, and, and the other thing that's worth talking about, you're talking about Sobers, Imran, Miller, Botham. Those are all test-grade all-rounders. Elise Perry's probably played less than 20 tests, um, she probably played less tests than Aubrey Faulkner. Um, I'm trying to think of how many Aubrey played. Uh, she really didn't play um, a lot of, or still hasn't played a lot of tests and will never play a lot of tests. So that actually makes it more, well, it's harder. Uh, Mathali Raj, I think, is a perfect e example of this. I think if Mathali Raj had played 50 or 60 tests, um, I wonder what she would have averaged. But my guess is she probably would have averaged, you know, 50, 55, 60, probably higher than anyone else in the women's game, uh, she would have a completely different reputation, especially in the back half of her career, whereas people talk about Mathali Raj as, you know, kind of a player who played on a little bit too long and really struggled when it came to T20 and one days and all that sort of stuff. If she had 50 or 60 tests behind her with a huge average, people will be like, well, she was a red ball player. Um, so the actual conversation 
is different. You know, the the the, the format of the sport we're playing. Also, in you know, Elise Perry's case, we're still at a case when it comes to women all rounders. If you look at that. Uh, list that you've given Miller and Botham were both professional footballers in two different kinds of footballing codes. Well, at least Perry was also a professional footballer. Well, was she? Pro- I suppose she wasn't professional, but she was a national footballer. As we're getting forward, it's almost impossible for a man to play two professional sports unless he fails at one and goes off to another one, or around twenty-eight to thirty-two decides to have another go at something else. Whereas women's sport is at such a different stage of development that it's almost more like that sort of Botham era uh, where you could play a little bit of professional sport of both and then make a decision. Um, I've been doing a lot of commentary with Kath Dalton, uh, who who played for uh, Ireland and England A in cricket, but she also played for West Ham and Tottenham in football. I mean, that's a lot of teams that Kath Dalton has played for. And and you do, you do see those sorts of things. Um, uh, happening in women's sports still, whereas in men's sport, it's probably getting to the point now where, you know, you kind of have to decide at a very early age which one you're going to specialize in. Um, but yeah, um, you know, uh, it's, it, th- what you're asking is fine. I just think it just depends on the conversation. Christopher says, why is it that Asian fans will have preference for attending white ball cricket at home, but also overseas, whereas English and Australian probably have better crowd for test cricket? Is it an economic reason or general preference? Okay, the first thing I would say is that I grew up in Australia when one-day cricket had much better crowds, had phenomenal crowds, in fact. Uh, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, um, that sort of peak one-day uh, you know, sort of vibe was very much like what T20 crowds have become around the world now. Um, a lot more, it was a lot younger. Uh, it was certainly geared in that kind of way. One-day crowds have certainly died in Australia. I'm not sure they have, though, Christopher in England. Um, I'd have to I'd have to look up the numbers. I, I don't cover a lot of one-day games in England, so you know I don't I, I don't spend a lot of time. But when I used to cover one-day crowds in England, they were still really really strong. Um, uh, in Asia, I think one big part of it is probably the day-night element. Um, I think that. Uh, that you know, uh, the Asian grounds are not particularly set up. A, a lot of the Asian grounds are not particularly well set up for fans during the heat of the day. Um, I think that's probably a very fair part of it. I also think if you look at India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka specifically, although and even Bangladesh, all of them had their more global, big time success, sustained success, probably in white ball cricket. They. Also, every one of those countries, perhaps even Bangladesh, were around it, uh, although less so with Bangladesh, were the time when they got really good at cricket was that time that white ball cricket was probably, a, oh, sorry, well, one day cricket specifically, was probably very much at its, at its um, zenith. Um, and then I, I think in general, um, there's probably a, um, a, a, you know, I th- so I think those are the, the uh, majority of, of the reasons. I would have thought traditionally those they would have had very good test crowds and then something happens around the 80s and 90s that probably changes for some of those countries. Um, but you could argue the same for New Zealand. You could argue the same for South Africa. So it's not just Asian countries. You could argue the same for West Indies, I'd say, as well. So I don't think it's an Asian thing. Um, uh, and there might be many, many different reasons uh, that it has happened. But, you know, um, it's certainly... Interesting that it, I, when I used to go to test matches in Melbourne, you know, we didn't expect 70, 80, 90,000 people to turn up on day one. That sort of seems to have developed through the 90s and become a bit of a thing. 
and then Boxing Day and um, uh, and New Year's Test specifically became events. Adelaide Oval became an event. I, I don't think outside of perhaps maybe Cape Town, I wonder how many you know uh, countries outside of, of of Australia and England have sort of managed to make those tests into specific events. So if you look at Adelaide. And Boxing Day, I suppose. A lot of people travel in from long distances for that. And you get that a lot for some of the England uh, places as well. It, I, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm perfectly set up to answer it, but um, it's certainly something that uh, I find interesting as well. Um, Ian says, what do you know about the late Roy Fredericks? He doesn't seem to have the profile these days that he deserves as the man who crashed a 71-ball ton versus Australia in 75-76, which was the fastest ever at that time. I think we worked out Gil Jessup's was faster since. I think that's right. But, but yeah, he was certainly one of the fastest. Uh, And he had a very good test record overall. Look, I think Roy Fredericks probably, if you look at his record, he's in an interesting era for West Indian cricket. The, The, I don't know, Calypso era. Um, with you know, with the three W's, with Hall and Griffith, that that sort of you know Lance Gibbs and the, the many different spinners, Sonny Rabadan and, and all those sorts of guys, they were that sort of first real push of West Indian cricket. And if you look at the records of you know Weeks and Walcott and Worrell and Sobers, incredible batting averages. Uh, obviously, Sobers one of the greatest players of all time. Wes Hall, almost the prototype, almost the guy that deserves a lot more credit for changing the game that one of the first really tall bowlers, you know, six foot five, six foot six is a front foot, no ball bowler, seam bowler, but hit the wicket seam bowler, not an English or New Zealand hit, uh, seam bowler. So very much a modern test bowler, um, well ahead of his time. Also phenomenal. I would say phenomenal athlete, which is true, but also phenomenal stamina, like, you know, bowling at his pace, which was very, you know, very quick for the time. Um, he he also had the ability to bowl incredibly long spells, really well ahead of his time in many different ways. Obviously, Dennis Lilly, if you look at – Wes Hall had this thing with his wrist early on, um, and uh, uh, Dennis Lilly copied it. So Dennis Lilly was inspired by Wes Hall, which, you know, and then a lot of the West Indian seamers were then re-inspired by Dennis Lilly as well. So it's, it's a weird sort of – a circle. So that is an absolute great era, even if they didn't quite have the success because Australia and England were very strong. And even South Africa was strong at that time, although obviously they wouldn't play the West Indies because the color of their skin. But so that's a really strong team. And then you fast forward a little bit later and you get a really, really strong team again, obviously from 1976 onwards. I think Roy Fredericks's sort of peak is between those sorts of eras a little bit. And there was probably always better players around than him. Fantastic player of of quick bowling, um, you know, a brilliant striker of the ball. Probably does deserve more credit, but probably just fell in that little. I, I think maybe even maybe even argued Lance Gibbs is another one that probably fell in that in, into that sort of middle ground middle ground uh, bracket where Lance Gibbs and Roy Fredericks don't quite get the respect that they deserve because the players on either side of them or sometimes the players in their own team were, you know, so much more dynamic and maybe took a lot more of the attention away. If you think about Roy Fredericks, like he's kind of on his way out at the time that Viv Richards is coming around. Then you've got Gordon Greenwich, you know, Desmond Hayne, Richie Richardson, eventually then Brian Lara, you know, that whole sort of procession sort of happens afterwards. And I think probably Shivnor and Chandrapal as well, I suppose you could put into that. 
a lot of incredible players sort of came through that sort of 20-year period after him. And I think as much as anything, that's probably why he doesn't quite have the reputation, you know, uh, that he deserves. And you see players like this a lot. I was talking about this with someone with recently about Ken Barrington is probably another one in England that doesn't get the respect that he deserved. Alan Border my, maybe is another one. Uh, you know, Alan Border sort of, you know, was an incredible player in a really poor team. Um, and But that team got a lot better kind of after he left. And he was quite clearly one of the best players. But was he a better bat than Greg Chappell? Probably not. Was he anywhere near the sort of levels of some of the guys before him, you know, the, sort of Bradman, you know, Neil Harvey guys? Again, probably not. And then after Mark, uh, sorry, after Alan Border, you have Ricky Ponting and um, obviously now Steve Smith and all those sorts of people. Alan Border is still a fantastic player. So I do think that, that those sorts of things do happen to very good players. They kind of get wedged into a period of time that maybe isn't talked about as much. And we end up talking about the more successful teams. And, you know, you do realize there are a lot of incredible players that probably don't have the reputation that they deserve to have. James says, do you think Sam Curran's improved batting for Surrey this year will translate into him becoming a frontline batting option internationally in the near future? No. So I think he's averaged 50 in first-class cricket over the last 12 months. I think that's on around 10 games of batting. He's batted at six, seven, and eight uh, in that in that period. I think if they really... Uh, so Sam... I don't know if this is still the case, but I know a couple of years ago he was desperate to bat four or five for Surrey, maybe even three, but certainly four or five, get himself up the order as much as possible. So uh, with that and, that, and that, I think I might've written about this at the time, his best, he's at the wrong team. There are probably teams that would, that if, if, if Sam Curran said to them, I will move to your county if you allow me to bat at four or five, I think there are probably teams that would take that because he is, you know, he is such an extraordinarily talented player. Uh, you get a left-arm seamer. Uh, you get some batting. <coughs> there are probably teams that would be willing to to take that chance. Surrey's just got so many players. That how do you even fit him in? And that was the question of, I don't know when that was, 2018, 2019, when he was asking regularly of just how do you make this happen? The fact he's batting at six and making runs is better. And, certainly is quite interesting. I think if you look at his test data, and, you know, I've spent a lot of this, there's a lot of weaknesses. I think, I can't remember what these weaknesses are against the spin, but he struggles when the ball's sort of on a length outside of stump. That's fairly normal. I think he also might struggle when it's shorter and at him, and then also struggles with a bouncer. That's a lot of weaknesses for a batter if you if they're going to be a frontline test batter. You really don't want to see that many sort of glaring holes in a technique. However, a lot of that is when he's been trying to play this sort of enforcer role, batting at seven and eight and coming in at Hitty. If he can change that kind of, I don't want to say the mentality, but that sort of style of which he bats. And I haven't seen him bat in a first-class game for Surrey this year, I don't think. I don't think I've seen him bat this year. So I'd be more interested if if he's worked on the weaknesses than just having the better batting average is probably less interesting to me. But I do think it, this is where county cricket doesn't really fit the purpose. The best thing for English cricket is for Sam Curran to be batting at number four in, in, a, you know, and, in, in a decent level of first-class cricket to see if he can develop as a specialist batter. It, we might see with Sam Curran that he might have a, you know, Jadeja slash Hardik slash 
uh, Dan Vittori type leap with his batting when he gets older. This might be it now, James. You might have, you know, you you might be witnessing that now. The problem is that you really want him to be more than that, I think, and you also want it to happen a lot quicker. And that's where you know developing him in that kind of way, um, letting him play a year of county cricket, batting up the order would be much more helpful. I would have thought. Uh, then, it, 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 and he's obviously never going to bat at four for England. But if he can bat at four in our first-class team, it means he's facing the new ball a lot more often and he's facing the best bowlers a lot more often. And then the other options, of course, are spin and how that works. But it, I, I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting period for him. But it could just be that he's had a bunch of good innings. I know, I know that I haven't talked to Gareth Batty about this. So, you know, it's one of those things, I suppose, if I talk to Gareth Batty, he, he'll probably be able to tell me. But I don't think the noise I've heard coming out of Surrey has been, he's now a batter. I think the noise has been that he's made some runs, which, I mean, that's where it starts, obviously, but it's a little bit different. Will says, we're finally entering the death spiral of ODIs outside of World Cups, aren't we? Probably. Uh, Ben Stokes is a much better ODI player than a T20I player, but the reasons why he quit the former rather than the latter are obvious and understandable. I've seen this a lot. Not sure I really, A, I'm not worried about his T20I stats because that's, then you know, you don't worry about those stats. You worry about his overall top-level T20 stats. We've seen him at his absolute best dominate in T20 cricket. I don't think he has as much of a natural role in T20 cricket, but he averages over 40 with the ball. Where do you, I, I almost think that his bowling is probably more useful in T20 cricket as that sort of sixth bowler than he is in T20, as than he is in one-day cricket. Um, in that sort of role, he really just struggles. I, 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 I don't think he's a very good bowler with a white ball, which is which is part of it. I, I mean, you say the reasons he quit uh, the former rather than latter are obvious and understandable. We don't know which format he likes more as well. There is that, uh, which is also uh, a, a part of it. It wouldn't have surprised me if he also quit T20Is. So when when you say that, it's possible he could have just done that. Um, I think there's a World Cup coming up maybe sooner, and and he th- I thought that was uh, an idea. But also from a very from a workload thing, if you're going to quit one rather than the other, it would always make more sense to to quit one day is because in in it's more work on that day than T20s are. Uh, so yeah, look we we've look we've seen players a lot of players in the world quit red ball cricket and continue on with white ball cricket. We're not in a death spiral of Test cricket, so you can. You, you can you know go too far with that, but it's not just the Ben Stokes thing. It's also what happened with um, South African cricket as well. Um, and I do believe that it's finally on the wane uh, in Asia as well uh, from from the levels that obviously you know it has once been. But yeah, I think if I was, I think if I was a cricketer, I would probably quit one day cricket and play Test cricket and T Twenty cricket. But it's not just about the money, although you do make more money in those two than you do in one day cricket. It's funny how we say money for T20 cricket, but we never say money for test cricket where he would actually get paid a lot more. I always find that really interesting that no one ever spots that one. It's a lot of money in test cricket, guys. Uh, you know, not for all the teams, but certainly if you're an England player, certainly if you're an England captain. But yeah, if you, from, from my point of view, forget the finances. I pre- probably prefer to play T20 and test cricket. I prefer those formats. So we can't underestimate that he might feel the same way. Uh, Ditchia says, uh, do you think Dan Vittori is underrated as an all-rounder? He has impressive numbers in both tests and ODIs. What would you be? What would be your assessment of Vittori as an all-rounder? Yeah, I, I think you have to remember with him that it was very late blooming. So that is part of the reason. And also, 
his bowling was never quite top tier. Uh, he was probably, and part of this is just because he had to bowl in New Zealand a lot. But, you know, I mean, he bowled in an era where, you know, he sort of crosses over Monty Panesar, Graham Swan, Shane Warne. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else of sort of non Asian spinners who did quite well. And don't think he was a better bowler than any of those at their best. He certainly wasn't a better bowler than Shane Warne. I don't think he was a better, he certainly wasn't a better bowler than Graham Swan. Monty Panasar, he probably had a better bowling career than Monty Panasar. But I think Monty Panasar at his absolute best was probably still a better bowler than Vittori, even if Vittori was obviously a much smarter bowler and a more versatile bowler than Monty Panasar. But yeah, so. So I think you have to. So I, I think you have to sort of go. Well, where you know where does he kind of fit in? There's obviously a lot of Asian spinners better than him as well. His batting's more interesting because, you know, I've said this a lot. He worked out how not to get out. I wouldn't say he ever became a frontline batter, but he did. You know, with, with Chris Cairns, um, uh, you know, and you know various sort of wicket keepers like McCullum and probably even Perore before that. I'm trying, before McCullum, I think it was, uh, you know, those sorts of things. He created this incredibly strong middle order, but wasn't strong enough to go up and bat at five and, you know, and, and to be able to do that. I'm not even sure he has a great record at six. I'd have to I have to have a look at that again. I, I can't remember. But so what you have is someone who is a very, very handy, clever bowler, maybe more on the Nathan Lyon level than on... Um, uh, you know, than on some of the other uh, levels as far as talent and skill and impact on a game. And then you have a batter who's really, really handy, but obviously then very limited. You know, he wasn't going out and smashing hundreds, he, although he did smash a couple, but he didn't make a lot of hundreds. He didn't build a lot of big scores and he did do it from, you know, the middle order in a limited way. It makes him really tricky. You've then also got to throw in the fact that at one stage he was captain, coach and head selector all at the same time, maybe the last time, a major team will ever allow anyone to do that, although maybe Misbah might have, might have almost done that as well, which I find really, really interesting. So, look, I think he's a fantastic cricketer, and I think what he did for New Zealand was allow them to go into every game with a spinner and then allow them to strengthen the, their batting, uh, you know, in either direction, any kind of, you know, whether they could bat him at six and have extra bowlers or they could bat him at eight um, and have an incredibly long batting lineup. He was really, really good. I, you know, as far as where he goes down in the grey all-rounders, I think the number of runs and the number of wickets certainly, and the, the longevity of his career, certainly say, suggest that he has a long time. I just don't think that he ever had huge impacts with bat or ball in the way that some of the other players perhaps, uh, in, in fact, uh, many of the great all-rounders did. In some ways, he was, he was obviously a better-than-handy bowler, and a better, better than handy middle order player, but he wasn't a level in either of those things. So I think he definitely deserves to be on any list of great all rounders. But if you think of one of the great things about all rounders, tends to be that sort of dynamism of their skills. So you know, sobers, you know, could by by being an all rounder in so many different facets, there were so many different ways he could help the game. And his batting was so aggressive. Gilchrist, his batting was so aggressive. Flintoff, his bowling and batting was so aggressive. Stokes, his batting is so aggressive, and I suppose his bowling. You know, both them, Kapil Dev, you know, those, those sort of players have much more. They have one main skill that's more dangerous than him quite often, and then they have this ability to um, be more dangerous through attacking with the bat or the ball. Almost Vittori was, you know, 
a safe option with both and a fantastic safe option. Uh, uh, look, I th- I've always been a big fan of him, but hes I just find him, you know, I'll be honest, I, I do think he's a tough one to categorize correctly. And that is, there's absolutely no doubt that, that that's probably complicated his legacy. Also, just to go back to what we were talking about before, which I, I find this, you know, again, you know, the great New Zealand team was in the 80s. Then you had that little, that team between what, you know, late 90s to early uh, 2000s that were fantastic, uh, you know, a really good team. And then, you, of course, you've had the team sort of from McCullum through to now. Uh, it's now starting to drop off. But Tory didn't really, wasn't really a, a major player in any of the two major eras and was, a, was sort of a developing player, although a very good one early on in his career in that first era. Again, he kind of just slipped in in the wrong time. I, I think he, he's clearly one of New Zealand's greatest players. I think he's got the second most wickets for New Zealand. So that alone is incredible. And then he probably has, what, 20th most runs or 15th most runs? I'd have to look that up. But my guess is he'd be really high on both. And I think he deserves a lot of respect for that alone. And also, you know, a bit like Tim Sow, the, the ability to come in very young when he wasn't probably ready, to continually develop his game, stay relevant, and then with him, even more so than Saudi, you know, to make the absolute most out of everything that he had. He was, he was always one of my favorite cricketers and he certainly deserves a lot of respect, but I think he'll probably slip through the cracks a little bit, which is probably, you know, one of your, your point in that question. Uh, and we've got James who says, what are the ownership structures of first-class county sites? Are they private, owned by the ECB or other? They're owned by the members, I believe. I think that's all right. I think they're member clubs. Um, so the members have to make uh, votes uh, and uh, the members decide their future, you know, more or less. Obviously, they've got committees and, and, and there, there's also money that comes in occasionally. Uh, so who's given money to their team? Uh, well, actually, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the full situation with Rod Bransgrove is. Uh, obviously, there was Colin Graves at Yorkshire. So there's certainly there's benefactors involved uh, and it gets a little bit murky. But on a very basic level, uh, county cricket teams are run by um, the members who decide on what to do uh, with the club. But obviously it gets a bit more murky the further you go up. So the ECB run the county um, system, and so they're in charge of that. But essentially the ECB is still largely run by the counties themselves. So, the you know, I can't remember how many seats there are on, on the vote, but... But, you know, the large percentage of them uh, come from county um, teams. Uh, So there's no private teams, although there is private funding, as I said before. It's that model is probably not what you would want if you want England to be the consistently successful team in all formats. Um, But at the same time, the competitiveness of that model does help a lot as well um, in a way that should mean that the majority of teams are consistently trying to win to help their membership or well, placate their members in a way that maybe you wouldn't get in a lot of first-class competitions. So we had that period where Australian first-class cricket kind of went, uh, they got rid of the second 11, uh, they made it into an underage competition, um, and then they made the, uh, what's the best way of putting it? Then they, uh, and then they sort of had a pivot to youth, which really affected from what we could tell, the, the level of batting in in first-class cricket in Australia, that then affected the team. And, you know, it's still, I would say now, even, you know, now T20 is also an issue, but 
and and the way that the the summer is split up is also an issue. But but I, I think that Australia never quite recovered from that. That's probably not something you're going to have in county cricket. But what you will have in county cricket is players staying on. I, I think you obviously want experienced players, but you'll have players staying on because a 37 year old who's never going to play for England can still average 35. Um, and if you bring a young guy in, he might average 25 or 26 in his first couple of years. So that is a problem uh, in itself, but it does make the level of the cricket higher. So Canada cricket has a lot of flaws and strengths uh, within that, but it certainly, there's no way, I, I, I can't think of any first-class structure, maybe outside of islands, where you would set it up and even islands is too small, but they're at least trying to do it correctly, where they're actually set up to make the national team strong because that's not why first-class cricket really started. So, you know, obviously all the county teams, the Sheffield Shield teams, well, the three main ones anyway, they all started before there was test cricket. Um, even Western Australia, you know, had a team and and um, and, and, and there, was, there was cricket in Tasmania as well. So you've got a situation where, it would have been the same in New Zealand. The first-class teams obviously came before the test teams. I'm trying to think what happened with Bangladesh. But Ireland obviously is one where they set up a system to make better red ball players and also white ball players separate, um, uh, you know, and with a purposeful intent. Most teams don't do that. This has gone a long way away from your question. But, uh, yeah, the basic way of answering that is uh, uh, that they are run by the members themselves uh, more often than not. I, I don't think there's a private – I'm trying to think if Rob Bransgrove owns Hampshire, but I don't think he does – and I know of other people who've tried to do stuff like that. Um, usually they're just owed money by them. But anyway, uh, I've got a podcast next week on the too much cricket issue, which is about Ben Stokes. I've got one on the fake leagues that we've been seeing lots of fake leagues come up. And I've got another video on batting geniuses. Uh, so some really cool things with batting. So that should be up tomorrow. Muku's probably listening and going, no, don't tell them that in case I can't get it finished on time. But remember, if it's not up by Friday morning, it's not that Jared didn't do it on time. It's that Muku didn't produce it on time. No pressure, Muku. No pressure. Uh, Karen, are you there? Yeah, hi, Jared. Can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, uh, like, what were your thoughts on India going with Rishabh Pant as an opener in the T20s? Yeah, I th my guess is, and I haven't talked to Raul Dravid, and I haven't been following it as close as most Indian fans, but my guess is that there's a lot of experimentation with the Indian team at the moment. Less so maybe the test team, but certainly the white ball teams. I don't know what India's thoughts are here, but my view was that they were playing a very, very old-fashioned T20 and very, very old-fashioned one-day cricket and that they didn't necessarily need to be, do that, that they could have... I mean, if you look at them with Ashwin, with Jadeja, with Hardik Pandya, with Shardul, I'm trying to think... Of, uh, with Akshar, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. Um, with Deepak Ahuda, perhaps, as well. Uh, you know, they had they have an ability to play these kind of long batting lineups if they want, um, you know, and then stuff in, you know, uh, uh, Jasper Boomer and maybe, you know, uh, I, I can't, you know, a specialist spinner or something along those lines. And I think for a long time what we've seen is these batting lineups from India that are where the top three or top four all have to make half centuries for it to make sense. And um, and then in T20 cricket, obviously, a similar thing, except without the half centuries. My guess is that Raul Dravid's come in and has been, he's experimenting a little bit more. 
because he knows what the talent is like because he's worked with that lower level. And I think if you're an Indian fan right now, you're probably a little bit frustrated. And that's probably what the Rochelle Pant opening is about. Again, is seeing if that is the case. I think he's a perfect number four in T20 cricket. And I would probably get him to look at the way that Glenn Maxwell has played that position. And I think Rochelle Pant is a better player than Glenn Maxwell. Maybe not quite as explosive in the same way, but um, explosive in a different way. But I, I believe that that is what they should be looking at uh, as a team. But I think there may be, maybe what we're seeing is just a little bit of experimentation of seeing if they can change things around. Obviously, we're seeing different players. But what I'd like is a kind of a structural, I, I think they can play different styles and maybe even against different teams. They could go into a World Cup where, and I'm talking about either of the formats here, with a very solid, what would you say, uh, um, you could have Hardik batting at, listed at seven and Jadeja batting at eight, if you want, and then you know hope that you get through your full 20 or 50 overs that way of those guys. You then have the ability to, bowl, uh, to bat Hardik at six and Jadeja at seven, and then you have that other ability to literally, you know, almost do the Chennai Super King style um, or the England team style of literally having people who can bat all the way down to number nine and freeing up your top order to go ballistic. So I think that is probably where they are headed. But at the moment, they're trying to work out which players for which roles that they can do. But I don't see, I mean, and Rishabh might end up being absolutely brilliant, but I think he's so good in that middle order Unless, unless he's, unless they just think they're going to get a lot more out of him, you know, as far as actual production, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be batting at number four. I think he's an ideal number four, and I'd like him to go back to the old style he had batting in 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 those positions before Ricky Ponting in India told him to settle down. Because uh, I don't think you need to tell him to settle down. I think he can easily have a high average and a high strike rate combined uh, by just being Rashad Pant. Thanks for your question, mate. All right. If anyone else wants to ask a question, uh, feel free uh, to raise your hand. I'm just trying to think if there's any anything else uh, I have coming up. Um, I think that's the majority of it. There's some 99.94 news coming, so stay close to that Twitter profile and uh, and and listen here. I'm sure we'll be announcing it here, but it looks like uh, Karan's the only one going to ask a question today. So huge thanks to everyone who sent their questions in on Patreon. Remember, if, you know, we usually do these around 2 p.m. British time or British summertime, whatever it is, on Thursdays if we can. If you can come over and ask a question, feel free to do so. Huge thanks to all of our sponsors, uh, LinkedIn, Manscaped, and everyone else for backing us. And uh, we will come back next time for another podcast. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. 
Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Lakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orijasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Oh, 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 oh